Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Sunday night, not Tuesday, but we'll do the time warp, it's just a jump to the left, and uh, redo Tuesday's show. Uh, there was a tech issue, on, you know, like you only program like 30, 60, 90, you know, 120 minutes into, uh, you know, the you know, blog talk uh, schedule thing, and uh, for some reason, you only got 12 minutes on Tuesday. Um, but that was the best 12, 12 minute rant I've ever done about any author's comprehensive research and how it helped me with my historical writing, uh, especially with the study of, uh, you know, the President McKinley assassination. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to try to repeat that. I don't, I don't remember what I said, anyways. Plus the <laughs> lost the archive, uh, so it was a good one. I'll try to uh, remember what I said and interjected uh, while we discuss our guests' uh, three books, and we might get into other one. Uh, of his books, but um, I want to uh, welcome Roger uh, back to hopefully what's going to be a full two-hour show. Hi, Roger Pick and Paul. How are you? I am well, thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, we're we're doing fine for the first uh, three minutes, but um, yeah, yeah, you know, when we were getting. Uh, started uh, Tuesday night. You, you, know, you did bring up the um, 
airship sighting over Sistersville in, in New Martinsville in 1897. And, you know, when uh, we had Zelia Edgar and Steve Ward as guests, and they were saying, oh, yeah, you know, I've researched that. You know, uh, there, there was that, uh, um, you know, documented uh, report, and it, it does show up in uh, the Mothman prophecies. And when I went to the um, Butler, where is the Butler Paranormal Conference yesterday, the uh, Boru Butler Organization for Research of the Unexplained, uh, you know they do mention in their um, you know handouts. At, at the front door, uh, the earliest recorded UFO sighting occurred April 23rd, 1897. Uh, it was reported in the New Ca- Newcastle, Pennsylvania paper, and uh, it was seen across Butler County. Um, and there, there have also been uh, reports in Lindora, Evans City, Zelianople, and other places there in western Pennsylvania. So I you know, you know, Roger, your comment that you made on Tuesday, uh, uh, just uh, like one of those synchronicity things, kind of, you know, walk into the conference yesterday and they handed hand me the uh, paper and it's like, oh, wow, there's the same thing Roger was talking about. So I'm, I'm just uh, saying you have more buttressing evidence for – what happened, guys, over, uh, what, 120-some years ago? Yeah, that was, that was definitely the time period, and I think they continued for for just a few years. I think by the time 1900 rolled around, uh, the, those sightings had pretty much ended. Yeah, oh, and, and well, they, they would pick up, and then you get the Mothman in there, too, and the late 1960s and we'll be covering that later this later this summer but yeah it's just part of you know our local history if if the audience hasn't figured out you know we don't live all that far apart but um one of the um statements I was making at the start of Tuesday's abbreviated show was that you do take some of these local stories, um, you know, let's just say, you know, River on a Rampage, where, you know, you are – uh, covering, uh, you know, what, e- Eastern Ohio, West Virginia's Northern Panhandle, uh, looking at the f- uh, flooding e- event. But what you are really terrific at doing as an author is showing. That there, 
snow, uh, melting snow further to the northeast contributed to the uh, flooding. And since the river is uh, nearly a thousand miles long, and what it's uh, after the flood would have gone through West Virginia and Ohio, it's still going to have an impact in Kentucky, uh, Indiana, Illinois, uh, you know, drain into the Mississippi. So there is a region wide. It's not, you take on these local subjects, but yeah, there's also a region-wide implication, too. And, and I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of your writing. And I think it's, it becomes more pronounced with the uh, President McKinley assassination book as, as well. But, um, you know, let's... Maybe we can start off with uh, River on a Rampage. All right. That's, just, that's what you, we tried to start last time. It, yeah. And so, yeah, the New England had a lot of snow. I mean, we just kind of uh, recap that, and then we can. Uh, look at how the Ohio River was impacted. Okay, so you uh, you just want the general background of the flood? Yeah, you know, with the uh, okay. uh, you know, just he- heavy snows in New England and everything that kind of can be put into the perfect storm. And, and I think that was about where we ran out of time last week or uh, on Tuesday. Right, right. and and long before the, the phrase "perfect storm" came into vogue, that is how uh, one representative of what was then called the National Weather Bureau described it, uh, because a number of factors fell into place to produce uh, record flooding, as you say, from from New England down to the Upper Ohio Valley. And it started with heavy snowfalls that winter. And then the heavy snowfalls didn't melt because it was a particularly cold winter. And then, uh, as you got toward middle March, uh, this was followed by heavy rains that were held in place by high pressure over the Canadian Maritimes. So the rains themselves, of course, contributed to the flooding. But in addition, they melted the snow, and that just added to the mix, and it, it produced record flooding. It affected 17 states, um, uh-huh. Pennsylvania the hardest, and when it was all over, it left uh, 100 people dead and damaged or destroyed in the neighborhood of 35,000 buildings. As we go through your three three books tonight um co- most uh, most of them fit into the last um well t- 200 years with the national road starting you know, 
might be able to go a, a little earlier. Um, but it, we will see that over about the last 200 years that many of the is, issues that Thomas Jefferson, et cetera, were, were dealing with, we're still dealing with you know, the same situations today. And for example, with the flooding, um, you know, you get uh, you know major city like uh, Pittsburgh gets hammered with uh, two two rivers converging. Um, some of the yeah, devastation is actually pretty bad with the number of fires. I, I think a lot of people probably don't think of fires during flooding, but you know, you're saying that happened. Uh, definitely, yeah. Um, mainly uh, the result of natural gas explosions. Um, in fact, uh, one of those occurred very close to where you live. Uh, a couple of the deaths in Wheeling, West Virginia, were the result of a of an explosion and fire. Hmm. Okay, yeah. and there there's also in times of crisis there is the inevitable price gouging. And you know the you know, the photos that you include in your book just do show serious devastation to our area, and there is you know the price gouging was going on. One businessman said he was asking to ask the asking price to remove his family from their home had been $150. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah, people people with boats uh, suddenly uh yeah, suddenly developed a profit motive. Although there were of course the vast majority that wasn't the case. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the next sentence. At the other extreme and more common were reports of selfless heroes rescuing and caring for flood victims. But yeah, there's your you see the same thing going on in in today's world. I mean, it just you, you make an interesting point here. Yeah, I know that, that will probably always remain a constant in human behavior. You'll you'll have people that want yep. to help, and we hope that's always a majority. But but you'll you'll have a few that will take advantage too. Okay, and, you know. One of the really um, – I don't know what the right word uh, – being awestruck, uh, ter- uh, a terrifying uh, predicament is – was it in East Liverpool, the flood starts ha- hammering – that town at night uh that must have been 
very disorienting for people uh, uh, without you know, the extensive modern street lights that we have today. And you, know, you have rising water. Uh, what was the effect of the flood ha- happening at at night uh, versus it in the daytime. Well, as as you say, um, you, yeah, you could not see your enemy very well, so it just just added to the fear and the confusion. Uh, there were also cases. Well, let me back up a little bit. There had never been a flood this severe in the Upper Ohio Valley, and while there were some reports that it was going to be worse, there were people that just couldn't believe that. Uh, it was going to be as bad as it turned out to be. So there, I'm, I remember at least one story of a man who did go upstairs, and he'd had a little bit too much to drink, and he fell asleep in an upstairs bed, believing he'd be perfectly safe, rolled over in the night, and uh, his hand splashed with water that was filling up the bedroom, and he spent the rest of the flood standing up on his bed to survive. Well, uh, okay, and there were some eyewitnesses still alive that you were able to interview. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that process of finding some of those people and, you know, they're correcting – uh, yeah, you know, the record. This happened in 1936, uh, not not the 1937 flood. Right. Yeah. This and I did the book uh, about 20 years ago, but it was still 60 years after the fact. So I think the you know, the oldest person I interviewed had been about 30 when the flood hit, and and the vast majority. Um, had been children. So a lot of my eyewitness accounts uh, were written through the eyes of children, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, that affected their memories somewhat. Um, I believe uh, – uh, I don't think the book's behind me. Um, yeah, there's the, that passage from uh, – um, The body understands the score where uh, trauma like that, the memory of that trauma, traumatic event doesn't uh, really change that much. Um, For some reason, have a pretty accurate memory and and they aren't really embellishing it with uh, all kinds of other um, things they add on later. So I'm, I'm sure that you got a, a accurate account of what it was really like it, going through that kind of ex- terrifying experience through the eyes of a child. 
Yeah, and and really, um, the the vast majority of people I interviewed um, go through the worst of it. In other words, they didn't, uh, you know, have a narrow escape with their lives or anything like that. They were chased upstairs. Many of them were rescued on boats, but. Um, mm-hmm. They they seem to approach it really more as an, an adventure than anything else. The, uh, the the more dramatic stories that I got came more often than not from newspapers uh, rather than from my interview sources. And you um, do have photos, say from the. 38th floor of the golf building in Pittsburgh, as well as uh, some um, Smith Ferry, which is kind of right there on the Pennsylvania-Ohio border with homes uh, surrounded with the flood. Um, Probably, sorry, got to be, there it is. you have the uh, kilns in a photo of uh, kilns from Wellsburg that look like they are submerged. Um, that would probably be related to uh, in industry. How uh, long did it take for the waters to recede, you know, do, do the cleanup, uh, you know, were some of these uh, you know, bigger employers area ever able to open up or how long did it take them to recover to uh, resume business and get the employees back? Well, from – I'm sure there were exceptions to this, but in general, uh, based on my research, and I, I, it, my research after the flood was somewhat limited, but um, these big factories in the upper Ohio Valley, as soon as the water started to get down, and it, it goes down pretty quick, um, mm-hmm. you know, within a day, after, day or two after the crest, you're able to get back into buildings even in low-lying areas. And, of course, anybody who lived through a flood will tell you the important thing is to chase that water out as quickly as you can uh, before it has a chance to to have the silt settle down, because that's what gives you real problems in cleanup following a flood. And, of course, these these business owners knew that. They'd been flooded before, not to this extent, but it, it was not a total novelty to them. So they called the employees in as quickly as they can, and as I say, I'm sure there were exceptions. I'm not giving the whole story here. But uh, they had those industries up and running relatively quickly, certainly with, within a week in most cases. Oh, okay. Well, uh, what was the um, legacy of this flood? We know there was, uh, you know, the following year there was like, Three and you know went down uh, you know the Wheeling Island and checked their uh, flood memorial. And there's three the next year, like two in January, one in March, and that's you know, I think I uh, mentioned something on Tuesday where uh, you know the Green River in Kentucky 
was uh, flooded at about the same time. I don't, I don't know if the Green River couldn't flow into the Ohio River and it just backed up uh, throughout Kentucky. And, and Dr. Webb writes a little bit about uh, the, the flooding that occurred around Indian Knoll as he was getting ready to uh, do some excavation. So it, it's really interesting that uh, you know you, what you wrote about in, in the, for the 1936 flood. Uh, you can read uh, you know, just a, a little bit that Dr. Webb covered in his Indian Knoll, it shows some kind of uh, like ecosystem uh, connection across the east, eastern part of the United States. Uh, but, you know, is there uh, some kind of legacy from these uh, Right, you know, the regular occurrence of flooding. We'd have the dams built, what, about 20 years later? Um, well, you, you mean dams on the Ohio? Yeah. The the original system of locks and dams was, was already in place. Um, there have been two sets of, of locks and dams on the Ohio, and by 36, these, these were all there, um, 52 or 53 of them between Pittsburgh and Cairo. Um, I know the, the, the Warwood Dam in Wheeling would have been Lock 13 on the system um, because Lock 14 was in Marshall County where my, where my mother grew up. Um, and then the system that's in now was begun in the 1950s and is pretty close to being completed, but, but not quite. Now, the Army Corps of Engineers has told me, and they've really hammered home this point, that the dams on the river itself are not for flood control. They're, they're purely to uh, deepen the navigation channel. But what did help keep 36 from being worse um, were dams that um, dammed up creeks, um, especially the dams that uh, were built as New Deal programs here in southeastern Ohio by Muskingum Watershed, for one. Uh, these grew out of the flood of 1913. Um, oh, okay. So they kept 36 from being even worse. And, of course, since then, there have been other dams built for state parks and the like, and uh, they'll help going forward. You know, it, it, it's really a fascinating subject. I, I, I just gone along out of your book, and you know, when you go to put something like this together with the variety of photos. Where are you obtaining this many photos from across the region? Are they just on, on online? Are you, you know, going to a lot of libraries? Um, no, no, none of this. None of this I got online. 
Um, the ones in the Pittsburgh area, and you might notice that they have a particularly high quality. They're very sharp pictures. Uh, mm-hmm. They came from the Pittsburgh office of the Army Corps of Engineers. And then wow, I worked okay. my way south. Um, it, it really varied. There were county historical societies that had photographs. There were individuals, uh, WWVA Radio and Wheeling, um, put out a souvenir flood edition a few weeks later, and it had some very sharp pictures, which the folks at the radio station were, were kind enough to let me use. So it's it's a variety of sources. Okay. Well, the, you know, with the writing I've been trying to do, uh, the, these um, – County historical societies and libraries really do have uh, great resources. They are a wonderful uh, way to find information that may not – most people may not think about, but there it is. You, you, know, you just need to ask. Uh, you know, I find them uh, gone out of their way to be helpful for some of the projects I've worked on. Their the life librarians are are wonderful people, and with very very few exceptions. Uh, yeah, they just they they live to help you with 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 your research questions and with your mm-hmm. digging, and um, virtually all of them. In fact, I've never found one that doesn't. Um, they have the old newspapers on microfilm, and uh, for something like this, of course, that was a that was a priceless resource. The, the newspapers and my personal interviews made up more than ninety percent of the book. Yeah, I I I agree with you. I think that they uh, may be a frequently overlooked resource, but you know, once you get talking with them, they probably have a lot of the information that uh, a writer needs to uh, fill in the gaps of uh, their their project or you know the photos. There, I find that they've been there to uh, provide limitless support. That's that's been my experience, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, okay, let's kind of m- maybe switch gears, almost literally, to your latest book, America's First Interstate: The National Road, eighteen oh six to eighteen fifty three. Um. I was just on it today for a few miles. 
and it did and we will get to um looking at some some of the mile markers to did 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 look at the the uh, one in someone's yard across the street from the Greenwood Cemetery <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that uh here sh- shortly but let let's take a look at this infrastructure problem from 200 years ago it's a Always in the news uh, anymore. Uh, you know, need to, uh, you know, just uh, Pitts. I was it like in January? There's uh, you know that Pittsburgh bridge collapse. Uh, fortunately, no one was hurt, but yeah, you, know, you could see that one of the uh, buses was. Um, um, in in a ravine. And you always have, you know, states always trying to fix the potholes at this time of the year. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington were basically dealing with the same bridge issues and potholes and uh, the types of wheels to be used on the Conestoga wagons. So <laughs> let um uh, Roger so what there's not and we do have a little bit mentioned in the constitution about the infrastructure um get post roads needful buildings whatever that means yeah that's in article <laughs> 1 section 8 under uh, under the powers of congress yeah what it built what docks and you know, docks yards and, and yeah forts and magazines arsenals <laughs> yeah that that's it um but it really doesn't say a whole lot about um, road construction, other than for you know to get mail from someplace to your house. Yeah. Um, well, so there there became a need to build a a road to. Um, well, uh, so, uh, you know, there, you know, there was a need uh, to transport whiskey. <laughs> that yeah. George and George Washington trying to get uh, some of his customers land along the Ohio River. But uh, you know, so so what were some of the early reasons for building a road? From you know the eastern states at, uh, towards the western prairies. Well, um, for George Washington, um, who had been west of the Alleghenies six times and realized the difficulties of uh, of getting over the mountains, 
Um, he was really afraid that as settlers began to pour into the Ohio Valley and, and settle what would become Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, later Illinois, Indiana, that um, their transportation magnet would, would be the west, the Ohio River and the Mississippi River. And Louisiana at the time was controlled by Spain. And he, he was genuinely afraid that Western Americans might be tempted uh, to give their loyalties to Spain simply uh, because of trade. So he thought it was vitally important that a, a road be built to connect the eastern seaboard uh, with the Ohio Valley. And uh, he didn't live to, to see this put into legislation. But Thomas Jefferson, who disagreed with Washington on quite a bit politically, um, he agreed on this, and for Jefferson, it was even stronger because most of these Western settlers, being farmers, were oriented more toward his Democratic Republican Party than they were the Federalists. Okay, so um, Jefferson... Wanted to, yeah, okay, like you said, there was a little bit of a political angle for Jefferson, but it also a constitutional issue, and we would find that with Madison as well, where it's like, uh, yeah, we, okay, it's a, it's not really in the Constitution, but you know, we can kind of make an exception to it. You know, so you have a couple uh, – what do you say, like strict constitutionalists uh, making uh, – oh, what did you say, uh, moderating their stances? Well, you, you had that – in Jefferson's case, and he yeah, he definitely was the strict constructionist, but at the same time, uh, he was a practical individual, and if he could see the, the benefit of a government project, mm -hmm. uh, he could overlook his scruples. He did it with the National Road. Uh, he also did it with the Louisiana Purchase, uh, because mm -hmm. the purchase of a, a tract of land, especially one that vast, is clearly not directly mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, interestingly enough, it was it was Jefferson's two successors and political allies, Madison and Monroe, who vetoed bills uh, to keep the road going and uh, and and really slowed its progress quite a bit. Okay, well, so there, you know. If you look at a map, you know, Route 40, um, and it goes through our area, through Indiana. It, uh, I think it goes to California now, but it, it actually goes as far as Utah, and then it uh, becomes part of Interstate. I believe it's 80 uh, on to Sacramento. Oh, okay. okay. It, but before the National Road was built um or, or let's just say started uh 
there was an idea that was kind of already underway, um, and that was the Zane Trace. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that was the brainchild of Ebenezer Zane, your your fellow Wheeling resident. Um, in 1796, he got a um, government contract. It's not quite the right word, but he got permission from the government um, to build a road from Wheeling um, to a point opposite Maysville, Kentucky, on the Ohio River. Uh, he didn't get any money for building this road, but he was given a land grant where the road would cross the Muskingum, the Hocking, and the Scioto Rivers, and of course that that became prime real estate. That's where the cities of Uh Baynesville, Lancaster, and Chillicothe grew up. Basically, all Zane and uh, his work crew, which is largely members of his family, did was just, just cut a path through the wilderness. Um, cut down trees, grubbed most of the stumps. When it was completed, it was just wide enough uh, for a horse and rider to get through. So they they transported goods um, by pack mule trains. There would be a a dozen or so mules uh, connected together that would carry the goods. And as time went on, it was just ordinary citizens who ended up really turning it into a highway, uh, cutting trees to widen it so it could uh, accommodate wagon traffic. But yeah, I would I would say the trace was uh, the first major road building project in American history. Although by today's standards, it doesn't appear very ambitious. But okay, the you know, the beginning. Uh, Supposed to start in Cumberland, you know, then, then you get other states uh, saying, you know, we want to start in Virginia and Pennsylvania. You know, so you had the typical, like, political <laughs> wrangling about, uh, you know, we want to. You know, it sounds like a good idea. We wanted you know to go through you know through our state. So, what were all those issues, and how they finally decide on you know like Cumberland is Cumberland, Maryland is the starting point. Yeah, that's interesting because originally Cumberland wasn't even in the mix. Um, the proponents of this road realized that since it was it was going to go to the banks of the Ohio somewhere, it couldn't really start any further north than, than Philadelphia as a practical matter. And Washington, D.C. would be about as far south as it would be feasible to start. And, of course, you had uh, Baltimore contesting in between. So how it ended up with Cumberland roads had already been constructed from both Baltimore and Washington to Cumberland. So starting there and just connecting with those roads that were already in place um, really gave the builders a a head start. They were 100 or 200 miles uh, already to the west if they began right there. Okay. And... The government 
government needs to hire contractors to build it. So you bring up uh, there were eight sections, and you know there's bids on uh, those. Uh, you know, you know, going through uh, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and so, uh, further west. How was how were those contracts handled? Uh, well, first of all, um, the man who was named superintendent of the road was uh, one David Shriver, who did have some experience in road building, and they paid him eighteen hundred dollars a year to uh, supervise the project from. Cumberland to the Ohio River. Uh, that's that's as far as the original legislation was going to take it. And he um, was required to hire uh, contractors um, on a on a, a bidding system. They would put in bids for a certain section of the road, usually somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to ten miles. And by and large, the low bidder would be awarded the contract, um, but this this led to a lot of problems. Some of these contractors were outstanding, um, others not so much. Um, there were some that would, uh, of course, they had to hire work crews, and a lot of them ran out of money before the project was finished. Uh, one of them simply disappeared for about three months. Um, they didn't always approve of Shriver's regulations. In fact, one threatened to drag him off his horse and beat him to death. So um, it wasn't uh, wasn't really a good situation, but uh, that's how the road got built. Okay, and what was the uh, McAdams design? Uh, well, that didn't find... come. The, the McAdams system did not come into play until 1825 when they started building the road through Ohio. Um, although what was done before was was very similar, um, the main difference was the road as it was built from Cumberland to Wheeling had a slight crown to it that was believed that that would help with drainage. But um, McAdams, the Scotsman who came up with this method and what it was generally accepted by the mid-1820s, he believed the road should be perfectly flat and then layers of uh, cut stone applied, um, sometimes two, more often three, and then uh, tamped down with, with uh, rollers pulled by oxen. And this, he believed, would uh, cause the stone more or less to adhere to each other like a, a jigsaw puzzle. And uh, that would provide a smooth surface that, in effect, would drain itself. Okay. And it, it is noted in Colonel Norris's notes about uh, the road, it was like an, uh, an Adena, you know, uh, prehistoric native road 
being uh, built towards South Charleston, West Virginia, and it, it almost had the same design. I thought that was inter- interesting that his 1884 you know writings on on the road are very similar to the designs that you know you're talking about you know 1800 years later <laughs> really i just like how you know native americans had the same design yeah, they 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 figured things out very early on. Yeah, and really, this you know the, the gravel road system uh, stayed in effect until oh the early 20th century when uh, the automobile became more prevalent, and it became um, more practical to uh, produce paving material uh, such as cement and later asphalt. It, it, so, yeah, you did mention that you know roads going to go to, uh, the Ohio River. Um, you know, there are obviously other rivers that are between the Ohio and uh, Cumberland. Um, so you have to somehow get across the river so there were a number of uh bridges built and and always i think a lot of people uh have an interest in bridge architecture um you go into a lot of detail about the castleman bridge um you know what's what was the evolution of building that you uncovered while writing your book? Well, I'll be honest. I'm, I am not an authority on the history or evolution of, of bridge building, but um, the Castleman Bridge, uh, not too far west of Cumberland, I'm guessing here because it's been a while since I've been in that region, but maybe 40 or 50 miles to the west, um, That's about right. That was the uh, that was the first large stream uh, that the road had to cross, and that was really to be a test of whether or not this was going to be a modern thoroughfare or not. If they could uh, could get across that stream, and when the thing was completed, it was 354 feet long. It was the at that time the largest stone arch bridge in the United States. And how well built was it? Well, it carried vehicular traffic, carried cars clear up until 1933, about 120 years after it was built. And it's still standing. Um, if you're taking uh, U.S. Route 40 through Western Maryland, uh, you can stop at the Castleman Bridge State Park. I believe they still let people walk across it. And it it is an impressive site, uh, you know, especially for a structure that was built more than 200 years ago. Okay. 
And you know, there's also the S bridges. Uh, what was their um, unique design? Well, just that. They were shaped like a letter S, and there was a number of theories as to why they did that, anywhere from uh, drunken engineers to uh, stuff runaway <laughs> horses. But the simple fact is, at the time, because you know, bridge building, while it was uh, developing as a science, uh, it still was a far from perfect one, and it was simply easier to construct bridges that way uh, in going from from shore to shore along a large creek or a river. Okay. I, I really like the photos you included of the bridges. And, and it's and we also see what oh also get into some of the engineering achievements, like the Castleman River Bridge. Um, there are also the Army Corps of Engineers had to come in, and they what. It was that group who wanted to just keep the road going straight and then have roads uh, go, go down to uh, uh, to towns like uh, uh, Dayton. So, so that was kind of like a engine, engineering mistake where the highway was not going through the growing downtown area. It was it was clearly a case of stubbornness. Um, now the Army Corps of Engineers did not get involved until construction started through Ohio. Um, believe it or not, from Cumberland to Wheeling, um, the road was built under the auspices of the Treasury Department. But then, um, when when they started west of the Ohio River. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers took over. That's when the McAdams system was introduced. And you're absolutely spot on. Um, with military precision and military stubbornness, um, that road went absolutely due west. And people in places like Barnesville, Ohio, Newark, Ohio, uh, Dayton, which even at the time was one of the larger cities in the state, uh, they could not understand why uh, that road could not be diverted just a little bit to, to go through their communities. And, and as a practical matter, they were right. Um, but the Corps of Engineers, you could call it disciplined, you could call it stubborn, but they headed due west, anticipating Horace Greeley's advice. Okay, so um, as I mentioned a little bit ago, uh, as you travel west, you, you can still see today the mile markers that say how far you are from Cumberland 
and how far you are from the next uh, town. Uh, right. You know, basically the same concept is used on the Pennsylvania Turnpike where you have a mile marker every mile. Um, right, yeah, yeah. And these these were every mile. Of course, in those days, it took a lot longer to go a mile. And as you say, all of them at the, at the Crown had the distance to Cumberland. And then facing east and west um, were the distances to the next town or maybe two, uh, depending on which way you were going. Okay, and there are two – there was uh, two different types of mile markers. There, um, can, can you explain those, the uh, ones made in a foundry and the others were stone? Yeah, that's right. The ones uh, east of the Ohio were made in a foundry. I believe it was in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. I'm not 100% sure on that. And uh, then the ones uh, through Ohio and, and beyond to the west um, were, were were made out of concrete. And I'll, I'll put in a plug for what might be considered a competing book, but she did a good job. Um, Cindy Gherkin put out a book about just about the mile markers on the national road, and she really uh, did in-depth individual research tracking all that down. What was her name again? Uh, give, give give her a... Cindy, Cindy Gherkin. Okay. Uh, yeah, so ho- hopefully she's tuned in and uh, get, get some uh, book sales out out of this, but so I'm going to pull out my bibliography here and just make sure I'm telling you right. Yes, Cindy Gherkin, marking the miles along the national road through Ohio. So it, it is just just limited to the state of Ohio, but it, it's still an outstanding work. Cool. Okay. Um, I'll look for in a second. Um, so it, as Okay, we keep moving along uh, the road. You know, we're seeing the evolution of um, you know, the road. You know, going from like you know, basically like a footpath to uh, traffic, two-way traffic. Um, you know, people need to have a place to stay overnight and you, know, you discuss the development of inns along the way. What, uh, what, what was it like staying at an inn along National well, Road in the 19th century? Um, for one thing, it was very, very unlikely you were going to get a private room. You were... Um, probably going to share a room with another traveler and in some cases even a bed. Um, The innkeepers were not that fastidious about changing linen, so it was very likely if you were sleeping on sheets, they were going to be sheets that uh, one or more people had, had slept on evenings previous. At the other end of it, though, more positive end, 
you were going to be treated with great hospitality. These innkeepers went out of their way to make people feel welcome. Um, you were going to receive a bounteous meal, uh, high in quality and quantity. And you were going to be, uh, at least when you're in the, the main hall of the, of the inn, you were going to be kept very warm by a, a, a fireplace that could, could, could hold several pounds of coal, huge fireplaces. Now, that was for um, the travelers on stagecoaches. Now, the people that uh, piloted the Conestoga wagons, they were called wagoners back then, uh, not teamsters, uh, they stayed in what were called uh, wagon houses. And with them, you, you didn't uh, get an, an individual room. There was just one big common room with a fireplace. And late in the evening, um, they would spread out their... Um, feather ticks, the early day equivalent of, of sleeping bags, and all the wagoners would, would sleep together on the floor in the same room. Okay, and there's, uh, we're back to well, a lot of uh, uh, whiskey. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, <laughs> uh, you, could, you, could, you could buy whiskey by the drink. Uh, now, again, with the wagon houses, you just paid a flat fee, and that got you uh, two meals, um, a place to sleep on the floor, and all the whiskey you cared to drink. <laughs> a drink of choice. Um, well, there wasn't – there there in the, in the cities, you know, you might have uh, all a, a wide variety of spirits and wines, but um, – at, at the wagon houses, it was uh, probably a choice of uh, water or rot gut. That's why. Uh, that's the reason why I like your historical writing so much. You just <laughs> tell it like it is. Well, I try to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, that's why your books are so effective. You take us back to that time and help us to uh, feel like we could uh, walk into that situation and know how to conduct ourselves. Well, I appreciate that. I, I hope I do that. Oh, you do. So, so you, know, you get uh, you know, the ends developing along National Road and – then there comes, uh, you know, we get into, you know, the evolution of transportation along the road. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting to read about the uh, small wheels and the, the, the wider wheels on the uh, wagons. Can can you explain that difference? Well, this and this came into play when the um, states started taking over the road in the 1830s. Um, you know, the road had been built and maintained up to, up to this time by uh, appropriations by Congress. So it had been a tax funder, uh, taxpayer funded project. 
Well, now the states were going to be responsible for um, for maintaining the road, and they erected toll booths and charged tolls um, to uh, well for for various. Now they had they had a system of fees. I'm not describing this very well, but so much for every score of sheep, more for a score of cattle because they were heavier and did more damage to the roadbed, and so on and so forth. And in some states, um, Ohio being one of them, the wider the wheels on your wagon, the less you had to pay because the more narrow wheels, of course, would would bite in um, through the gravel and, and into the base of the road. Whereas if you had wider wheels, they actually helped because uh, they they acted uh, as as the rollers had been when they uh, flattened the road as they were originally building it. So at least in Ohio, if your wheels were over five inches wide, um, you traveled for free because you were not causing damage to the road; you were actually helping it. Okay, so so with. Uh, Okay, you know, like the smaller wheels were you know, what causing ruts, you know, yes, yes, akin to potholes. Yeah, except uh, narrower and longer. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, uh, you know this is the time of the year when the orange cones come out and. Yeah, you know, the crews are out there putting asphalt in into the potholes. Um, you know, they uh, need to put one on one of the roads I was on today. Tire off, but uh, that's another story. But uh, you know, we're still dealing with the same issues today. Um, so someone has to pay the crews to go out there and throw the gravel around 200 years ago or uh, pay the guys to put the orange cones up and got to hold the stop sign and you know, flag the uh, uh, traffic from the other direction on. So um, it costs money to do that. So yeah there we do have samples of places like sea rights toll house um it, it, what what are it, it, it seem like uh very unusual buildings along the road um it, what were their functions other than uh you know to collect money for repairs well, that that pretty much was their uh, sole function. Um, they were was there a collector? Uh, yeah, like, there, did, was a, did, there was a person who would collect the tolls. Okay, did, did, like the, the Seawright's place seems like it, it was big enough. Like, you know, was he there twenty four seven? Like, did was it his house, the collector's house, and? That is an outstanding question, and I do not know the answer. Um, I would suspect, because, yeah, I have seen the Seawright uh, toll house. The, the ones in Pennsylvania were much nicer, I know, than the ones you found in other states. 
So it is possible that the toll collector did live in the Pennsylvania toll houses. I, I doubt if that was true in uh, Maryland and Ohio. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I was at Sea Rights. Um, I just forget. Um, but it, it, those are some unique buildings for that period. I. I just fascinated by it, um, but there, I like, uh, you know, so, you know, for some of the people who were on the road, you know, like the bigger wheels, they didn't ha- have to pay. Um, but there were the ingenious people who took advantage of. The laws by saying, "Oh, I have to go to uh, Grandpa's funeral or go to church," <laughs> and like right. the same Grandpa right. was de- dying every yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. People going to funerals, the people going to and from church didn't have to pay. I, I'll tell you, the folks that uh, really came closest to getting away with murder were the uh, stagecoach companies, because in most, if not all, the states. Um, the toll collection laws said that any vehicle transporting U.S. mail didn't have to pay a toll. So stagecoach companies simply made sure that they tossed one mail bag on virtually every stage that went along the road. Uh, <laughs> now, the states caught on to this, and there were back-and-forth lawsuits and usually compromises. And uh, what ended up happening usually was uh, – the stage company simply paid a, a flat fee, which was good for a whole year. <laughs> yeah, that, and yeah, yeah, that you know, we were talking about you know, price gouging, with, you know, with the flooding uh, earlier this evening, and they were looking at uh, at how people tried to. Uh, get get out of paying uh, taxes. Uh, it, it, it's all the same same kind of uh, thing going on. And, and then uh, it, it, there's uh, another another story you had a, around Circleville where they kept having to move the exit because people were uh, uh, get, getting off a national road, and you know, they were able to detour the exit or the uh, toll booth. Right. Yeah, that was in the Centerville, Indiana, where they would uh, where they oh. would take side streets. Um, yeah, their mistake <laughs> was putting the toll booth in the community. If they would have put it a few miles east or west, there wouldn't have been any other options. But uh, but yeah, in Centerville, I think they moved the thing three or four, maybe five times, and and finally ended up uh, putting it where it had been to begin with. <laughs> it, it, I thought it was just f- funny just, uh, <laughs> how, how all this stuff just <laughs> keeps uh, it, it, the government catches on to how, how people. Are able to evade, evade you know, tax, and and the, there's a government response, and then pe- people 
uh, make adjustments and still try to find ways around it. it nothing new under the sun. No, no, that's that's one thing you learn if you study history is that uh, human nature doesn't change very much. We maybe sometimes get a little better controlling it, but um, it's still the basic <laughs> animal. Right. Okay, so um, yeah, let's see. We're... Okay, um, you know, we did touch on this uh, a couple weeks ago when uh, Brian J. Jones was a guest, uh, but, you know, you did did say that um, up until what the 1850s, nine presidents had traveled uh, National Road, and uh, four did on their way to be inaugurated. That sounds about right. Now, of course, um, at least one of them, Abraham Lincoln, traveled it before he became president when, when he was a member of the House of Representatives. Yeah, so yeah, there it's on page ninety-nine. Nine U.S. presidents made one or more trips over the road, some many years before or after their time in the White House. Four traveled it as part of their journeys to be inaugurated, and James Monroe was the first. Um, he no, he wouldn't have gone there on the way to be inaugurated, but yeah, he was the first. President to travel to over traverse, the road. yeah, yeah, to, to traverse the road. Yeah, I, I misunderstood but, what you were saying there. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, um, and, and interesting about Monroe, um, because this is when it was still being built, and uh, he stopped in Wheeling, where they were having a terrible problem uh-huh. with the the road slipping along Wheeling Hill, and he offered advice about uh, putting up sidewalls to prevent the problem, which which they ended up doing. Hmm. Okay, and, and we also get uh, William Henry Harrison, James Polk, Zachary Taylor, um, John Quincy Adams, um, and Martin Van Buren, uh, James Buchanan, um, and, you know, we, uh, when... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when Brian was our guest, he uh, you know, we spoke a little bit about uh, Washington Irving's um, long-standing friendship with um, Martin Van Buren. So it, I, I thought your National Road book. Um, had some real, really nice tie-ins with uh, Brian's uh, biography of Washington Irving. It is that you and Brian do um, an amazing job of recreating that uh, 1820s, 1830s you know, time period. And you get to know a little bit more about the you know just day to day activities of some of these um, 
well-known figures from American history. Not, not everything is related to some passage of this political bill. Um, you know, they had to get they had to get from point A to point B somehow, and yeah, and, and were, it would not it would not be unusual for a prominent politician such as Henry Clay uh, to be uh-huh. riding in the stagecoach with just a group of ordinary citizens. And, and um, some some of the presidents did travel in opulence. I just saw well, that too. Um, again, really everybody did because these stagecoach companies competed with each other, um, uh-huh. particularly the exterior paint jobs. Uh, to, to make oh. those coaches as beautiful as they could, but that you know that was the same for a president um, as it was for anybody else who might be writing the stage for whatever reason. Wow. Oh. So, uh, yeah. What? Um, we have probably like 40 minutes. I mean, I don't want to slight your um, fantastic book, McKinley Murder and the Pan American Exposition. Um, it, it, is there anything else you want to say about your National Road book? I I just really uh, enjoyed that one, too. I, I highly recommend it. Well, one thing that uh, you and I had, had talked about in the lead-up to this, something that seemed interesting to you, um, was the express mail in 1836. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't want to forget uh, that, and you get uh, – Let's talk about get, getting the mail you know, to to people from the East Coast out out to the Midlands. Well, and of course, by and large, uh, the mail was transported by stagecoach. But in 1836, the Postmaster General, Andrew Jackson's Postmaster General, I believe his name was Amos Kendall. Um, came up with an idea to transport mail much, much faster. And uh, to people that are familiar with American history, when I start talking about this, this will uh, ring some bells, I suspect. But the idea was to have boys, uh, ages 15 and up, on a horse, and they would ride five to seven miles in a circuit, and they would go three of those circuits west each day and three of those circuits back east. And for that, they were paid $6 a month in silver. And, of course, the mail that was transported this way was uh, that you couldn't send newspapers or anything like that, uh, just just letters with a, a very, very small uh, ounce weight to them. 
but uh, people started nicknaming it the Pony Express, and it was very much like the Pony Express that about 20 years later would go from, uh, I believe it was St. Joseph's, Missouri, to, to Sacramento, uh, young boys riding as quickly as they could uh, to get the mail through. And in both cases, it didn't make any money, so uh, neither one was, was around for very long, uh, close to a year. But uh-huh. there were some uh, newspaper editors who were a little bit skeptical of this, but at one point, I would assume this would have been in 1837, um, for some reason, the, the president, what then was called the annual message, today it's the State of the Union address, uh, newspapers were extremely anxious to be the first to get that in print. It was, it was really a big deal, much, much more so than it is today. And at one point, the message made it from Washington, D.C. to Zanesville, Ohio, in 27 hours. So that was a tribute to the efficiency of these boys, but unfortunately, as I said, that didn't make money, and uh, that was what was important, and that's what did it in. Okay. I, I, you know, it's just a little aspect of American history. A lot of people may not know about, but um, they they can learn about it in you're America's first interstate. Well, of course, everybody's heard of the Pony Express, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, the the original one has more or less been lost to history. Yeah, it's just um, you know those little tidbits of what it was like helps helps to helps us to envision what life was like. So. Okay, let's switch over to your McKinley book, and you know, it's, I think that one's really like three intertwined biographies of uh, President McKinley, the 1901 Pan American Expo, and Leon... Chugosh, Chogosh. Chogosh. Um, so, and you know, we'll uh, see how they all intertwine uh, over the next forty minutes or so. But um, you know, here you are taking, you know, the future president is a. Um, Ohio Valley native. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, so, uh, and, and you know, you look at you know the, the more you know far-reaching packs of you know, what was going on at the world at the time, as well as his uh, you know, presidential assassination. Um, but. What was uh, William McKinley's, uh, you know, background? You know, do do a brief uh, discussion of uh, that, and uh, you know, how was he uh, viewed by uh, both parties, and you know, th- things like that. 
Well, McKinley was um, born in Niles, Ohio, which is um, not too far from Youngstown, a little bit west of Youngstown. I guess it has to be west if it's still going to be in Ohio. And uh, later moved to Poland um, in 1861 when he was 18 years old. Um, Fort Sumter was fired upon, and like many young men, he um, joined the Union Army and uh, entered as a private, uh, unlike most of the other uh, Civil War veterans who became president. They they mostly went into the Army as high-ranking officers with a commission. He didn't. But at the Battle of Antietam, a very bloody battle fought on September 17, 1862, he was the brigade commissary officer. And there was very uh, fierce fighting uh, in his part of the battlefield. And he realized that some men in the thick of it uh, hadn't had anything to eat for over 12 hours. So on his own, in fact, really going against orders, um, he loaded a bunch of food into a wagon, got a couple of volunteers to go with him, and uh, took that wagon straight through enemy fire. In fact, it was hit a couple of times, but that um, earned him promotion to an officer, and uh, by the end of the war, he had he'd risen to the rank of major. Um, he came back home to Ohio after the war. He had, he had considered making the military his career, but his... Uh, father was dead set against the idea so so his father really helped change history but uh, he moved to Canton Ohio and of course that's the city with which he's mainly associated and was first elected I believe his first office was a prosecuting attorney for Stark County but he rose up through the political ranks and was elected to Congress in 1876, and that's where his national political career, of course, really gets started. Okay, and so he William you know, works his way up through uh, you know, politics, and we also have you know, the background going into this Pan-American Expo that needs explained. So what were some of the other issues going on? Uh, there was probably a lot more international stuff uh, at, at the time. At 1901, or eight, late 1890s into 1901, there was a lot of uh, international political stuff that uh, it, maybe a lot of people aren't, aren't that aware of. There's like the main um, ship uh, battleship explosion in you know, the Philippines. So, uh, Roger, can you, can you give us a brief background on that as well? Well, in, in 1898, and by this time, uh, McKinley was president. He was uh, midway through his first term. Um, conditions in Cuba, which was a colony of Spain, uh, became a major issue in, in the United States. Um, Spain was, was very, very harsh with its colonists, 
and rumors that there might be a war between the United States and Spain started to percolate. Um, President McKinley uh, dispatched the uh, the Maine. I believe it was a battle class ship. I don't remember for sure. Um, to Havana Harbor, uh, basically it was he meant it to be a goodwill gesture. But while the ship was there, there was an explosion. Uh, a number of men was killed, and a Navy investigation concluded wrongly. It's believed now that an external force, meaning a mine or something planted by the Spanish, had led to the explosion. So the pressure of war became overbearing. McKinley did not want to go to war. Uh, He said, I've seen war, I've seen the bodies piled up, and I don't want to see it again. But it reached the point that if he didn't ask for a declaration of war, Congress was going to vote one without his recommendation. So he finally reluctantly sent a war message, and the Spanish-American War lasted about four months. Of course, it made uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders famous. And Uh when it was over, um, the United States had Cuba for a short time, but then granted it its independence, but kept as colonies uh, Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Um, and uh, that was the the world setting as folks in Buffalo, New York, started to make plans uh, for a World's Fair, uh, the Pan American Exposition. And in fact, um, they began making their plans in the mid-1890s, and, and they had to be put on hold um, because of the war. Now, one of the ideas of this exposition was to showcase Western Hemisphere unity, uh, which was a bit of a Uh trick at this time because several Latin American nations were were somewhat resentful of the United States going to war with Spain and uh, taking colonies uh, as a result. Okay. And along with... Some you know, some of the North and South American fellowship that was uh, going on dis- despite the international problems was that you know you have Edison and Tesla uh, yeah. showing yeah. up to in Buffalo as well. Well. Um... Edison and Tesla, and George Westinghouse uh, was on Tesla's side, they had been involved in what was known as the War of the Standards. And sometimes when I start talking about this, I go on and on. So if I say too much, just shut me up. But Thomas Edison was an advocate of direct current, DC. The problem with DC was you could only transmit uh, this low voltage electricity for about 10 miles. Well, Tesla and Westinghouse believed in a new current, alternating current, AC, which could be stepped up with transformers to extremely high voltages and sent an, an, an unlimited distance. So it was much more practical. 
but Edison and some people who came to work with him, um, they tried to convince the public that this AC was uh, was just remarkably dangerous. If it came into your home, it would blow it up, uh, which it could if it wasn't stepped back down. That's why there are transformers on utility poles all around everybody's hometown today. But it became a vicious thing. Uh, a, 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 a friend of Edison's by the name of Harold Brown uh, held these events where he would uh, kill dogs with alternating current, uh, just just to try to prove this point. But in the end, the practicality of, of AC won out, and one of the big power plants for first big power plant for generating the AC current was logically enough, at Niagara Falls, which is only a few miles from Buffalo. So one of the aims of this World Fair, World's Fair, this Pan American Exposition, was to showcase um, electricity. This, um, this event was going to have 400 miles of electrical wire. Uh, they purchased 200,000 incandescent bulbs from General Electric, and uh, they'd end up with a light bill that, uh, and this was in 1901 dollars, ended up costing them $25,000 a month during the run of the exposition. Okay. Pretty seems pretty expensive. So uh, w- with bills like that, um, you need to get people interested in attending this event. So uh, here, here we are back to uh, what's supposed to start in April, and, and there's a uh, – a heavy snow uh, that delayed paving, uh, bad weather in May and June. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's not getting off to a good start. No, and it and it never recovered. Now that was not unique for the Pan Am, though. There there was a spate of these world's fairs. Uh, beginning in the late 1800s and continuing well into the 20th century. Uh, Probably the most famous is the uh, World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, uh, partly because there's an excellent book about a serial killer that that haunted it called uh, Devil in the White City. But it and almost all of them lost money. But, but yeah, holding this in Buffalo – um, really worked against them because yeah that that snowfall was about two weeks before the thing was supposed to open and they were already behind um, with their construction schedule and and suddenly you wake up one morning to eight inches of wet snow and that certainly didn't help. Yeah, the third part of your intertwined biography is. This sketchy character who had become uh, the presidential assassin. Uh, what was his background? And you, know, you got to read some special um, notes 
on him uh, while you were doing your research? Uh, yes. A, uh, oh, they were called alienists back then. They're called psychologists today. Uh, a man by the name of Channing um, uh, interviewed a number of Chalgush's family members, friends, contemporaries. Um, I, I don't know that Chalgush and his motives will ever be fully understood, but uh, he was born in June of 1873. Either, I forget now, his, his parents were immigrating from Poland, and he was either born when the ship was on its way here or very, very shortly after he arrived. Certainly, the United States was the only country he ever knew. Um, probably the best description of him was one that a, a friend gave calling him a dreamer, always a dreamer. Um, he bounced around through a series of jobs, mostly in manufacturing. Um, and then when he was in his early 20s, and his father, who really achieved the American dream, he was able to purchase a farm not too far from Cleveland. Um, but by then, Chalgeish, who had been an industrious young fella, just suddenly changed. Uh, part of it was his mother had died, and he absolutely hated his stepmother, and the feeling was mutual. And he basically withdrew uh, into a world of his own, um, took his meals in his bedroom, um, went off by himself, and uh, really became a distant individual, even from his own family. Yeah. Um... In a couple weeks, or no, uh, next the tenth, uh, I, I have Mark Olshaker as a guest, and I, uh, we're probably going to get into a little bit of his, uh, you know, the profiling book he did on uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. But it, it's it, you know, here, here's another example of where. This uh, would-be presidential assassin seems like uh, almost uh, to be derived by the the Unabomber manifesto. Uh, Just kind of like being – having a hatred for – industrialization and hates technology that like that kind of stuff that that happened with Chalgosh it began when he became uh, disillusioned with his uh, Roman Catholic faith and then um, of course anarchism was um, a large political movement at that time I say large the, the numbers were really small but uh, there was a number of assassinations in Europe, and mm-hmm. um, and Chalgeish began to adopt this philosophy. Now he, he's often just simply dismissed as an anarchist assassin, and there, there's there's a little bit of nuance to it. Um, in May of 1901, he attended a lecture in Cleveland that was given by Emma Goldman, mm-hmm. who was yep. uh, a noted anarchist leader at the time, and he seems to have become infatuated by her. One of the um, 
law enforcement officials, um, I, I don't remember if it was City of Buffalo or Erie County, which includes Buffalo, but he talked to Charles Geish and was completely convinced that he was in love with her. So another possible theory is, um, like John Hinckley wanting to impress Jodie Foster by killing Ronald Reagan, um, that uh, that romance may have been part of Charles Geish's motive. Yeah, yeah that, I, that yeah, yeah, you do a great job of uh, getting those details in there and showing something that it. it, it you know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are, uh, you know, remember the you know, Jodie Foster connection to, uh, or, or not, uh, you know, the Hinkley thing with Jodie Foster, um, and this like indoctrination type uh, situation. It, it just seems like that there was just you can see some of the stuff going on today that it could almost be uh, applicable to 120 years ago. Yeah, again, um, human nature does not change. Right. So, okay. So we, you know, we'll come come back to Leon here in a minute. But uh, oh, but, uh, but before we move on, he there was he was mo- got more involved in the uh, disillusionment of you know the prosperity that's industrialization was to bring with that homestead strike where uh, there's several dozen picketers that were shot in Pittsburgh. Yes. Yes. So, uh, you know, it's kind of add a little bit more fuel to the fire. You can see like the slow uh, dismantling of a Personality uh, with him, but you know, we'll we'll go into more detail with uh, uh, Mark in a, uh, about ten days. But um, so, it, anyhow, it, in in your book, you have a lot of photos of these uh, buildings that were being built for the expo. I, I mean, the, you know, this is. Uh, you know, these aren't just like little tents that were uh, put up for it, like a, a weekend festival. Yeah, you know, these are you know, some pretty substantial buildings. Well, get the electric truth, tower. They, yeah, in truth, they look substantial, but um, they were not made to stand the, the test of time. Um, the idea was that virtually every one would be taken down right after the exposition. So um, they were, of course, 
built to be safe and, and built to house people and the exhibits that were in them. But they, they were not built to last with um, one exception. The New York State Building uh, was designed to be permanent. And in fact, um, that's where the um, New York, or, sorry, Buffalo, New York, Erie County Historical Society is located now. And that's, that's where I ended up doing quite a bit of research because they have all the exposition records. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, and yeah, the a Grand Canal was built alongside the horticultural building, and you have a Temple of Music. Um, you know, sprawling machinery building. Uh, mm-hmm. Is sprawling is uh, you, you used the correct adjective there. Uh, it, it, yeah, you have uh, quite a few photos of these um, uh, b- buildings. I mean, it must have really been something to see. It it, it would have been amazing um, because, yeah, as you say, um, those those buildings were very very impressive looking. If you didn't uh, really examine them really closely. Um, and um, and they were all outlined with with these electrical lights, which were about the wattage and size of um, uh, the old-fashioned outside Christmas lights that people my age might remember from the '60s, uh, bigger than a lot of the Christmas lights that are used today. But uh, they they made what what had to be an extremely impressive display. Okay, and since, since we were talking about uh, time travel at the beginning of the show, to uh, yeah, uh, the, you know, this is to make up for Tuesday's uh, botch show. Um, yeah, you know, make a uh, connection. There is uh, Scott Paper had a contract for. Uh, Supplying toilet paper. I mean, you know, this is like uh, names that you know, we're familiar with today. Right. Yeah. Um, Aunt Jemima pancakes uh, introduced uh, a new type of flour at the fair. Um, instant coffee was introduced, um, and, and there are others that I can't pull up right now. But uh, yeah, this was definitely meant to be a celebration of American technology, American achievement, um, highlighted with uh, what could be done with electricity. Yeah, uh, and and there's also electric typewriters that were mm-hmm. what, what uh, presented yeah, for I, you know, like the first. Yeah, yeah. Gramophones. Right, right. Which, for people that don't know, they were um, what we would today call a record player. There's, uh, let's see, what, Buffalo Bill was there, Geronimo. Calamity Jane. Yeah, Calamity Jane. So you you Uh, get all these John Philip Sousa and his band, they got uh, $30,000 for, I believe, a three- or four-week contract. 
um, let's see, Civil War swords were on display. Yeah, all the U.S. coins that were ever minted were uh, put on display, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, native artifacts. So uh, the, uh, there were – both hem- American hemispheres were uh, – no, well represented Inca, Incan mummies. There's uh, uh, the medicinal use of cocaine. <laughs> okay, so so as I don't really have ten minutes, um, but uh, okay, uh, you, you also get. Uh, uh, Boa constrictors. So yeah, this right. is <laughs> yeah, that was from Frank Bostock's uh, Wild Animal Show. Yeah, so so, so somehow yeah, with all these uh, yeah, snakes escaping and bad weather, uh, it. it, it it looks like it, uh, you know, there is some education of you know, uh, what all these uh, different continents offer, and you know, there there was. Something uh, let's see, remarkable uh, about uh, North and South America could uh, could work together. So, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, there you know there are a few a few you know little problems, but o- overall, it's uh, you know there's a lot of good intent there. Uh, to, uh, good good things seem to uh, be happening, but okay, let's get to uh, Leon's further uh, slide into uh, you know, his mental dark mental condition and. The the pres, President McKinley's arrival to the expo. Uh, right. Well, one of the sad ironies of this is that uh, McKinley was supposed to be at the exposition several months earlier than he was. Uh, but his wife, who had a number of problems, um, I would probably say both mental and physical she had become very ill when he was on a trip to San Francisco to dedicate the battleship Ohio. So because of, of, of her condition, he delayed his um, arrival at the exposition. And, of course, it was in between these times that uh, Cholgeish really became interested um, in, in anarchy. 
Uh, so if McKinley would have arrived at the exposition when he was originally um, scheduled to, uh, this assassination very likely would not have happened. Uh, but as it turned out, Chalgaish went to Buffalo a few weeks before uh, the scheduled President's Day, uh, as they called it. And while he was there, he purchased a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver. And although his plans were never really definite, he sort of just um, went with the flow of events, um, murder began to enter, as you describe it, his troubled mind. Okay, so how did he get so close to the president? Well, of course, you have to remember this was 1901, and things were very, very different at, at that time. Um, the Secret Service in 1901 only provided presidential protection when the president went on the road. Uh, when he was in Washington at the White House, um, he was the responsibility of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. But at Buffalo, McKinley did have a uh, three-man Secret Service detail. Plus, there were ex exposition police. Um, there was the 73rd Seacoast Artillery, which also provided uh, some security. But McKinley, on the day of the assassination, first went on a tour of Niagara Falls, and then he returned for a reception. You mentioned the uh, Temple of Music, and that's the uh, building where it was to take place. Um, his secretary, George Cordelieu, was scared to death about this event. Uh, it was going to be a public reception line, handshaking, with, with people just simply filing through uh, to shake hands with the president. And Leon Chalgaish entered that line. Now, it was an extremely hot day, and a number of people had handkerchiefs out to dust their brows of sweat. Well, Chalgaish did too, and he used his handkerchief to conceal his revolver. Now, as this line went through, as luck would have it, uh, the man immediately ahead of Chalgaish looked Italian. And uh, I'm certainly not justifying or defending this, but in these days of anarchy coming from Europe, uh, the Secret Service agents looked him over quickly, and in fact, they, 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 they grabbed him and passed him out. Chalgaish, being Polish, was white, uh, to them, innocent-looking, and they didn't pay him much attention. So as Chalgaish approached the president, he had the revolver with the handkerchief covering it in his right hand. He extended his left hand, and McKinley just assumed that there was something wrong with the right hand, so he reached out to grab his left hand, and um, that's when Chalgaish fired two shots, and of course, one of them would eventually prove to be fatal. Okay, so uh, unfortunately we only have like two two minutes left, but it, right, yeah, yeah. There, what with all the electricity that was being showcased, there there was not an X-ray machine that might have been able to help 
it was actually a gynecologist that was on staff that was supposed to do the bullet removal. It, it was a gynecologist, Dr. Matthew Mann, who did the surgery. Uh, Buffalo's most skilled surgeon, a man by the name of Roswell Park, was not available. He was in uh, Niagara Falls, New York, tending to another patient. Uh, had he been there, the outcome may have been different. We can't say that for sure. But uh, just a few weeks le- earlier, Park had saved a woman who had a very, very similar gunshot wound to McKinley's. Wow. And yeah, there wasn't an X. Uh, Edison did offer an X, X-ray machine, but that was turned down. It just seemed like something that had so much promise of bringing people together ended up in tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a Shakespearean tale, no doubt about it. Well, I I think, you know, we're down to a a few seconds. Okay. Roger, is, uh, what's the best way people can get y- your books? Well, I would assume, you know, the same way everybody gets everything anymore, Amazon. Okay. But they can go to the National Road Book. They could go to the Kent State University Press website. Um, the McKinley book was published by an outfit named McFarland. And unfortunately, the 36 flood was self-published, so that would probably be a little bit more difficult get. Okay. Well, you also have your Johnson's Island and other Civil War uh, books on Amazon as well. And I, you know, Roger, yeah. I just want to thank you for being a fantastic guest. I really enjoy having you as. Uh, all my shows and hopefully we will uh, be able to get together soon again and, um, and we will see everyone or I'll see everyone on the uh, 10th. Th- thank you again, 